Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is a very special episode of The Scoop. I've had this idea for a few weeks. I'm always having new, interesting ideas, very creative soul, and just creative at my essence. And so part of the reason why I wanted to have Nate Madry over from Coinmetrics on today to talk about stable coins and the report that he conducted with Bitstamp was to sort of have like an explainer episode that might be the first in many explainer episodes of various topics across the digital asset space. So in a sense, Nate, you're kind of a, a guinea pig. Nice. We're excited to talk about the report, but also just excited to talk about just stable coins broadly, sort of how they entered the forefront of the crypto market, where they're going, what some of the use cases are. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Frank. I'm excited to be here and chat a little bit about stablecoins. Yeah, 100%. I think probably the one debate that often goes unnoticed or is ignored is the fact that we call them stablecoins, right? There's a, there's a lot of debate that goes, it kind of, there's a philosophical question, right? About whether or not these things are stable if they're tied to fiat currencies, which aren't stable. But I'm curious, Nate, what do you think of the name? Yeah, it's a great point. I think it's it's definitely a little misleading. I think, you know, obviously you need to look at it relatively compared to most other cryptocurrencies. They're very stable compared to Bitcoin or Ethereum. But yeah, I, you're, you're right. In, in the grand scheme of things, they fluctuate. And that's actually a lot of what I wrote about in this report, even when stablecoins fluctuate a little bit because of the, the kind of expectation that they stay stable. There can be great consequences if they come off the peg, their price back even just by a kind of a couple of pennies. It's definitely interesting. I think maybe the the thing about them that's stable is they're relatively stable compared to Bitcoin and ETH and the myriad of other tokens which whipsaw in price constantly. So relative to other blockchain-based assets, they are stable. But we had um, the former CFO of Goldman on the show a few weeks ago. And he had a great line, which was stable coins are only stable until the moment that they're not. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about some of those moments in time, especially in the midst of the pandemic um, and economic crisis in which these things kind of really got out of hand. But before we get into that, let's just talk about 
the rise of the market and its growth in recent months, right? In your report, you note that, you know, it took five years for the entire stablecoin supply or market to hit $6 billion, only took another four months for it to grow from $6 billion to $12 billion following the March 12th crypto crash. So I guess let's wind back the clock a bit for listeners who are kind of new to the scene. Where did stablecoins sort of originate from? Probably the first mover was Tether. What was the idea behind them? Was it a trading use case that kicked this off? Yeah. So, you know, the idea of having kind of a stable digital currency has actually existed before cryptocurrencies, before Bitcoin. Um, there was a lot of experiments over the years. Nothing really took off. But Tether, for, for all intents and purposes, was the first real stable coin. It came about in late 2014 and kind of hit markets in early 2015. But when Tether was originally created, like I was saying, it was kind of a reaction to Bitcoin. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about what is Bitcoin's real use case and real value. Um, and obviously there's been very heated debates about this and there've been forks, et cetera, et cetera. But even from the beginning, if you look back at Bitcoin's white paper, one of the proposed potential purposes was using it as a medium of exchange. And that use case has never really kind of played out for a variety of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is just the, the crazy price volatility, especially when price started going up, people got Bitcoin and they said, wait a minute, if this could go up, 100x, whatever, in a couple of years. I don't want to use it to buy pizza like that poor guy did a couple of years ago or in the beginning of Bitcoin. So I think a lot of the, the origin of stable coins is just kind of a reaction to that. It, it wasn't even necessarily using it in trading or for a specific use case. It was saying, hey, when Bitcoin was created, it potentially could have been used as a medium of exchange. It's not. So why don't we create something that kind of fills that role? And then from there, it evolves. Now it's it, Tether is, is mostly used in trading and, and other purposes like that, which I'm sure we'll get into. But what, when it first started, yeah, I think it was mostly just a reaction to what was out there already. And I think, too, it's important to know that, that stable coins, they capture all of the benefits or most of the benefits of something like Bitcoin, where it's censorship resistant, it's auditable, but it has that relatively stable price. And that unlocks just a whole bunch of new use cases. And you kind of had like different eras, I guess you could call it, of stable coins. Maybe 2017, the ICO boom, you had things like, you know, MakerDAO kind of rise. Um, there was the, there were a few other synthetic like stable coins that came into the fold. And then you had some of these more quote unquote regulated stable coins enter the market looking to compete with Tether with a sort of marketing campaign of being more regulated and and having trusted banking parties. So I'm thinking Paxos, USDC, Gemini Dollar, all of which with varying degrees of success. And then you had a number of exchanges come out with their own stablecoin, many of which are built off of Paxos. So you kind of have these different buckets of stablecoins, right? You have mm -hmm. the sort of synthetic, more decentralized stable coins, if you will, the the more regulated dollar-backed coins like a Gemini dollar or a Paxos, and then Tether maybe in a bucket of its own, which is the real kingpin, more lightly regulated US dollar-backed coin or 74%, right? If, if we want to get into the granularities of, of uh, that old uh, 
New York Department of Financial Services case, or New York AG case. But in any case, so you have various different types of stable coins. I, I guess the question is, do you view it in a similar way? You know, if you were going to explain like the different categories, how would you maybe go about doing that? Yeah. Um, so they're, they're di definitely different categories. A large majority of the stable coins right now are very similar, basically follow the tether model. Um, so I think it's actually, it's worth just kind of pausing here and maybe going back about how Tether actually works because it, it gets to your initial question as well about whether stable coins are actually stable. So when Tether was first designed, you know, they tried to figure out, okay, how can we make this cryptocurrency stable, which is actually a, a pretty kind of unnatural thing. Um, so the way they did it was pretty straightforward. They said, for every Tether that we print, we're going to hold one US dollar in reserve. And then theoretically, you can then take that Tether at a later time and redeem it back for the dollar. So basically all Tether is, is kind of like a dollar denominated liability. Tether is like a digital IOU for kind of physical dollar that should exist somewhere in this reserve. So that's what kept the price stable um, for Tether. And again, so like just, just building this example out, if there's a billion Tether that's been printed, there should be a billion dollars worth of US dollars in this Tether reserve. But like you just kind of alluded to, that hasn't always necessarily been the case. And part of kind of one of the paradoxes of stablecoins or the tricky things is that part of this exists on chain. The transaction parts of stablecoins, the supply, that's all on blockchain. So you can audit all of that and you can see it. But then this other side exists off chain, um, which is the actual dollar reserves. And that is held in a bank account somewhere by Tether. And that's much, much harder to actually audit and figure out wh whether it's there. So over the years, there's been questions about whether Tether actually holds all of that in reserve. Like you said, a, a couple of years ago, it came out that they only actually had 74 cents in reserve for, for every dollar. And then they also had some, some debt obligations that filled out the rest of it. But this has kind of been a persistent question over the years. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we were talking about in the beginning, it, it really actually is a pretty tricky problem to get a truly stable digital currency. There have been other experiments over the years. DAI is, it takes a different model. But, but before I talk about those, so yeah, the, the kind of the main bucket of stable coins is this tether model, where it's just dollar reserves for each stable coin that's printed. That's how USDC works. That's how Paxos works. That's how most of these stable coin works. It, it's also worth noting too that US dollars are the kind of dominant stable coin reserve currency right now, but it really could be any fiat currency. It could be any sort of kind of commodity. Um, there's some stable coins that are pegged to Euro. There are others now that are coming out that are pegged to gold. So that's kind of one of the first places where you can start building these different categories. What are they actually being reserved by? How do those reserves work? But like I said, a large majority of the stable coins right now are, are just backed by US dollar reserves. The other kind of main category off of that is these decentralized stable coins or, or stable coins that are fully on chain instead of having that off chain aspect where the, the reserve is held off chain in the bank. So DAI is an example of that MakerDAO's stable coin. It's completely decentralized. They still work off of this idea of having a reserve that basically backs the value of the stablecoin, but instead of holding it in US dollars or other fiat, it's all held in crypto. So, you know, Ethereum was kind of the main collateral, they've added more now, 
But the way DAI works is anyone can, can go and open up a collateralized debt position where they basically put down a certain amount of Ethereum or other crypto, and then they can print new DAI. So you can see all of the collateral on chain, which has a lot of benefits, but there are also other complications that, that come from that. It's a little trickier to get it exactly right. There have been other experiments over the year about doing truly kind of algorithmic stable coins. Basis was a, a famous example, but it was a, it's a really, really hard problem. And Basis took a lot of money and funding and eventually actually sh shut down because it was just too tricky of a problem. And with most stable coins, it, it's kind of the edge cases where even if you get the algorithms 99% of the way there, not even 99.99% of the way there, if you have that edge case where just the bottom falls out, that makes the entire thing worthless. So a large majority of the stable coins have still stuck to that kind of very simple, at least on paper, tether model of having US dollar reserves and then just printing it on chain based on that. It's funny, basis um, shutting down was one of the block's first big stories that got covered in a number of different financial media publications. So that was interesting, right? They shut down after raising over $135 million. I think they were able to give back some 90% of that capital to their investors, which included Andreessen Horowitz, Polychain, I think. And so, you know, that was a failure, but it was around the time that you had a number of different adversaries to Tether looking to come on online and, and take their crown. And so, you know, Gemini Dollar, USDC, a number of others, but there wasn't a lot of action. Like it wasn't until, you know, a year later that we even started to see that total supply start to pick up meaningfully, let's say like summer end of 2019. And then obviously right before or right around the time of COVID, it really took off. So I guess the question that I'm thinking of now is what kept Tether from sort of, you know, losing its dominance despite all this competition, despite its problems with US-based regulators? In the creation of this report, I'm curious if maybe you spoke with some market participants about it. I feel like a year or a year and a half ago, Tether was a dirty word yeah. and more and more so it's, it's not. Yeah, there's been so much controversy around Tether over the years. And I remember even back in 2018 saying, okay, this is it for Tether. And then it just always miraculously bounces back. Um, I, I think they've done a lot of things. I mean, they just got such a huge lead in the beginning and liquidity kind of begets more liquidity. Tether is by far the most liquid stablecoin on, on most exchanges. And it's like we were talking about, it's used extensively in trading. So I think that's just kind of a, a self-compounding lead. But I think in, in a way also the Tether's gray area, legal gray area has, has helped it out in a lot of ways. Even, you know, there's back in 2018, there were questions about how Tether was involved with the Bitcoin price pump. There was some kind of sketchiness going on with a bunch of Tether was being printed, then Bitcoin's price would go up and there were questions of whether Tether was being printed and then sold for Bitcoin and then then more Tether is being printed. Now, I think a lot of the Tether supply explosion is because Tether's isn't quite as stable as a lot of these other stable coins. Um, and that's for a lot of reasons, but it's also going back to the gray area. You know, Tether is traded more kind of on OTC desks and off exchanges, which, which makes the price a little more volatile. And since the price is a little more volatile, there are opportunities for arbitrage and for making more and more money on it. 
So a lot of these are, it's just kind of positive feedback loops where, where people are kind of operating on the, on the fringes with it. And, and a lot of people I think who use Tether don't really care that much about the regulatory issues. There's, I, I talk about it a little bit in the report, but Tether is, there are a lot of reports that Tether is used pretty extensively in China and Russia um, and other places in Asia and Europe on these kind of back channel OTC desks, especially China is a good example because there's pretty heavy regulations about trading fiat currencies directly for crypto in China. And that's been around for a couple of years. So Tether is kind of a way to, to get around that a little bit. Instead of trading fiat, you can trade Tether for cryptocurrencies. So a lot of the use cases that Tether is being used for, I, I just I think people don't really care as much about the regulation and the regulators themselves still just haven't been able to actually pin down Tether and figure out exactly what's going on. I think the heat is building and they might actually, in the upcoming years, there might be more consequences. But up until this point, they've really kind of snuck by and their, their lead just keeps on growing and growing. Well, there's a few different directions we can go in. You mentioned, and we've talked about this a few times or hit on it a few times during the course of the episode, the instability of some of these stable coins. You mentioned, I'm looking at the chart now, back in March when we were really being gripped by this crisis, you saw them sort of fall off their peg or fall out of their peg. They typically stay within 99 cents to a dollar and a penny, but can sometimes get out of that. What sort of like, I mean, it's obviously like a question of supply and demand that pushes them out of that range, but maybe walk us through the more precisely the mechanisms that result in them not being exactly pegged to a dollar. Yeah, so it's it really does come down to supply and demand. So if if demand shoots up for a specific stable coin and supply can't keep up, then the price is gonna go up. It's tricky with something like Tether because like I was saying, a lot of the trading happens off of exchanges, which makes the, the price a little more volatile. Something like USDC, for example, which is the stablecoin that's backed by Coinbase and Circle, the, the price bag tends to be a lot tighter. It's only traded on, on Coinbase and a couple of other exchanges, but it's easier to kind of keep track of. But yeah, I mean, it, it basically comes down to supply and demand. So after March 12th, when crypto crashed 50%, we saw demand for stablecoins shoot up basically across the board. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Again, the biggest one is probably just a rush to safety as Bitcoin and Ethereum's price crashed. People wanted to move into stable coins the same way that a lot of traditional investors move from stocks to dollars. Crypto investors were moving into from crypto to stable coins. There's a lot of evidence that basically the amount of stable coins held on exchanges exploded after March 12th. So people were kind of parking their money on the sideline. So just that sudden huge increase in demand caused the prices to fluctuate um, and uh, specifically it caused it to go up over a dollar a little bit. There was also a really interesting example on March 12th itself. Um, So there was an incident where Bitcoin's price almost got into a death spiral and and dropped, I think, below $4,000 before BitMEX went offline kind of suspiciously and then the price stabilized. But it, within that kind of one hour, one to two hour period, stable coins prices shot up to almost a dollar and five cents for a lot of them, which is really, really high. And that, that's just kind of an extreme example of, of the demand going up really fast and supply couldn't keep up. So yeah, that, that's, that's most of the dynamic, but then there's a lot of kind of hidden pieces that we don't fully see about what exactly is driving this demand. 
Interesting. I never really thought about the fact that USDC is really controlled by two entities in a sense, helping to maintain that stability. But then you have something like Gemini Dollar, which is completely under the auspices of Gemini, the exchange backed by and led by the Winklevoss twins. They've seen a number of, of various spikes, even after the sort of March event. You, you see a, about four more spikes in in May and then in June. Do you know what was behind that? Yeah, so Gemini is a little bit of a different case because the supply is just so low. I think there's less than $10 million worth of, of GUSD out there now compared to billions of Tether. So it's a little bit in a, of an abandoned stablecoin. People just don't seem to be using it as much, um, which really throws the kind of entire dynamic off. But yeah, I mean, GUSD has been far below its peg, even dropping down below like 90 cents at certain points. So it's it's not even really usable as much as a stablecoin anymore. What about USDC? That's that's kind of the one that's been in the news a lot. They just surpassed over a billion dollars in supply. Looking at this report, they've been probably maybe the most stable, second most stable, maybe after Paxos. I'm just sort of eyeballing it here. Um, so nobody come at me with uh, accusations of FUD. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just eyeballing it. But in any case, we've got a billion dollars, relatively stable. Seems like they're growing momentum. Circle just announced that Gemini and DCG are partnering with them to further expand the adoption of USDC. What about that specific stablecoin you think has aided in its recent growth? Yeah, I think USDC is another interesting example. I think it's probably in the best position to start really digging into some of Tether's market share. Um, there have been a lot. I mean, just having Coinbase behind it is huge because Coinbase can can not only you know back it financially, but they can market it and help get it involved in different places. There's been a pretty big push recently to get USDC more involved in DeFi and decentralized finance, which has also been blowing up recently. Um, but on March 12th as well, MakerDAO had kind of a, a mini death spiral and USDC got added as collateral there. So I think that that helped pump it some too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think USDC is basically kind of the biggest non-Tether stablecoin. It's the biggest stablecoin after Tether. So people who actually do care about the regulatory issues with Tether, but still want something that's relatively liquid and is is reputable, I think are starting to to turn more and more to USDC. And yeah, I think USDC is actually in a, in a pretty good position to start gaining more and more momentum over the next coming years. What do you think could drive momentum forward? Like what would be some of those forces and tailwinds? I think the DeFi thing is huge. I mean, it's, it's just a natural use case. You need um, stable coins for collateral in DeFi. You need them for lending. The yields for lending um, stable coins are, are really high right now for in DeFi. And I think as that, yeah, as that ecosystem continues to build, that'll be a good natural use case. I think also taking some of the trading market share from, from Tether, um, Tether is just used, if you look at kind of the, the trading volume breakdown for different stable coins, Tether is trading sometimes billions of dollars a day compared to these other stable coins that are doing kind of 100 million or less. And that's mostly, it's, it's basically used as a quote currency and traded against other cryptocurrencies. So I think it could potentially start digging into that some as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think as we start seeing just a, a rising tide for for crypto in general, that'll that'll really boost USDC. And something I mentioned at, at the end of my report is just the medium of exchange use case. 
now, especially as the world continues to evolve, if you going back to just what cryptocurrencies were designed for in these in the first place, you're going to have more and more use cases where you have global remittances, where you need cross-border payments, especially as people are more kind of isolated in different countries. Um, you need ways of, of getting money around the world fast, seamlessly, and cryptocurrencies are just perfectly designed for that, especially stable coins. Um, and we're, all, we're actually also starting to see a, a general trend away from physical money across the world but related to COVID because people don't want to you know, touch physical dollars anymore. But I think as, as all those kind of rising tides come together, we're going to start seeing more and more um, movement towards these stable coins. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. You mentioned the DeFi movement and or the momentum behind DeFi and a lot of the platforms that allow you to lend your stable coins so that you can earn a yield. And some of these yields are fairly high, right? Uh, especially yeah. when you compare, you know, the money you can sort of squeeze out of a bank these days. But maybe for a listener who is not totally familiar with those mechanics, how come the yields are so high? Like, what is it about me depositing USDC through a platform, maybe like a BlockFi, for instance? How are they able to ascertain such a high yield on a stable coin versus, you know, a regular dollar? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something we've actually discussed a lot internally at Coinmetrics, and we, we don't have a great answer. It's a little mysterious. The best we can kind of figure out is that if you look at what these, these stable coins that are being borrowed are actually being used for, a lot of times it's so people can get leverage on exchanges, basically trading trading on margin and kind of jacking up what, what they're trading. So I think that's a lot of where those high rates are, are set is it's kind of following um, exchange margin trading. But yeah, it's a little bit of a mystery. It's, it's when all other interest rates kind of around the world are near zero or even negative. How are people kind of getting six to 8% on, on stable coins? And that's a lot of what is driving DeFi too, or a lot of kind of the initial excitement. Yeah. And I wonder what happens when that sort of dries up or some sort of shoe falls and the yields compress and then the money making opportunity is no longer there. Does that suck then the air out of this explosion in stablecoin that we've seen, or then does something else sort of enter the fold that continues that momentum? I mean, it's anybody's guess. Yeah. And yeah, I, I feel like other use cases, more legitimate use cases will start to come into play. But yeah, I mean, as with a lot of crypto in general, it's, it's kind of been driven by a lot of speculation up to this point. What do you see at sort of maybe the peripheral of the speculation use case, the speculative use case, people basically using this thing 
to either get an insane eight to 10% yield or to move in and out of coin more effectively and easier, faster, and, and, you know, more efficiently. Are there e-commerce use cases, payments? Like, are you hearing of anything in that respect? Yeah. I, so I, I looked a little bit into it. It's a little harder to find data on the actual e-commerce use cases because it's, it's all off chain. So, you know, we don't necessarily, we see evidence of transfers and transactions and, and transfer value on chain, but we can't necessarily tell exactly what it's being used for. But yeah, just anecdotally, it does seem like it's picking up a little bit. I think though, you know, it, it's crypto just has, still has a good amount of, of way to go in general for before it starts really getting used in e-commerce. I think a lot of the user experience stuff, most, a lot of people who aren't in crypto just still don't even understand, you know, what wallets are, how to use crypto. They don't necessarily trust it, et cetera. But I think, I think stablecoins can be kind of an on-ramp for a lot of new crypto users in the upcoming years, especially for people who, I, I was actually just talking to, to someone the other day who's in tech, but not in crypto. And he was saying, yeah, I was really excited about Bitcoin initially, but then I got scared off by the price volatility. So I think stablecoins could be a way to kind of a, a first step for a lot of people into crypto especially people globally uh, around the world in Africa and, and on other places, there is some evidence that stablecoins are being used more in countries with distressed currencies. So that's another interesting potential use case is, is if a country's fiat currency is crashing, um, as is the case with a lot of countries now, there's, we're starting to see some evidence that people are moving more towards crypto and more towards stablecoins in general as an alternative if they don't trust um, their government's fiat currency. So I think that plus some more e-commerce use cases are are going to start becoming more and more prevalent in the upcoming years. But yeah, I think it's it's also just dependent on crypto in general and the evolution of the ecosystem in general. Yeah. And, and when you look at the broader landscape, there's a lot of economic uncertainty and there are more and more questions about the debasement of various currencies and the possibility of rising inflation. And if you have a coin that's backed by, maybe it's a stronger fiat currency or gold or something else, or the U S dollar, if it, you know, continues to be sort of the hegemonic, you know, fiat, you can then easily get into that and sort of find safety or refuge in this alternative. But you mentioned in the report that there is still this uncertain future, right? There's a yeah. question of whether or not you can scale these things. I mean, at the end of the day, $10 billion seems like a lot to us in the crypto world. But if you go to any developed, strong, robust market out there, I mean, most are going to be in the trillions of dollars, right? So yeah. could stable coins, although they've shown the ability to be a true medium of exchange, could they successfully, will they be able to successfully scale for things like international payments, as you outline, global remittances? What's your sense? Yeah, it's one of the big outstanding questions. I think they will, but I think the the tether question is still looming. You know, there's been more regulatory scrutiny has come out as tether kind of just in the last couple of months. So if, if tether gets taken down or at least crippled by heavy regulation that could really set stable coins in general back who knows how long maybe a couple of years maybe longer and you know if some of this tether supply goes offline then other stable coins will have to step in 
But I, I do think it's in a relatively strong place now. It's in a much better position than it was even a couple of years ago. And just infrastructure, crypto infrastructure in general has, has matured a lot. So yeah, I, I do think that other crypto, other stable coins are going to be able to step in and keep on building. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a little unclear exactly who's going to be the winner, how, how that's going to shake out. And then of course, you know, Facebook's Libra is still on the horizon, which personally I'm a little skeptical if that's ever even going to come to market anytime soon, but I'm sure we're going to see other stable coins um, similar to Libra, or maybe even new models come, come to the market as well in the upcoming years. What do you think might be some of the issues that Facebook Libra faces or will face as it tries to launch this, this thing, which will be, at least my understanding is a number of different dollar back tokens akin to tether a sort of scaled back version of what they originally intended to do, which was more of a basket token, which they intend to launch. I think they still say that they're going to launch that at some point in the future, but I guess they're starting first with a more simpler plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a little, it's a little strange to me, to be honest, just what exactly Facebook's strategy with this is. It almost seems like they're kind of teeing themselves up for these regulators to just come after them because, you know, obviously regulators are kind of chomping at the bit right across the world are, are trying to take Facebook down for various other issues right now. Mm -hmm. Plus there's a lot of regulation or people who want to regulate cryptocurrencies, but don't necessarily know how. I think at this point, a lot of regulators have realized that Bitcoin's kind of an unstoppable machine. They can't necessarily regulate Bitcoin directly. Um, so then stable coins are kind of one of the next big natural cases where they can say, okay, well, there's a, a company backing this. We can go after them. We can regulate that. And with things like Tether, which is harder to pin down, it just seems to me that Facebook and Weaver might kind of be used as an example for regulators, but who knows, you know, maybe they'll, they'll try and work with them and, and actually make it into something positive, but it just feels like there's so much kind of negative momentum around Facebook right now. in, in that respect, it speaks to their tenacity though, that they're continuing to push forward with this, despite all of the vitriol they face, not only from the crypto world, but, government agencies and Congress and the Senate. I mean, I'll never forget being down there at some of the hearings and what David Marcus was forced to take was, was something that I don't know if I'd have the patience to in any sort of similar capacity, but it raises a question. Like if a company is going to go through all this trouble to do something, there's going to be a good bang for your buck. Right. Um, and I think that that leads to an interesting question about the value of, of being maybe one of these stable coin providers, right? How do you make money off of this? How do you monetize it? Right. And one way, I think the, the one obvious way is the interest that you earn off the reserves that you would keep at a bank. So if you're, you're tether, you've got, I think there are 8 billion in supply. So that's $8 billion they're earning interest off of, right? At least that's my understanding of how it works. And so if you're getting, I'm not sure quite what they're getting at this point, maybe like sub 1%, but that's still 1% of $8 billion, right? What's, what's your understanding about the way that these firms kind of make money off of these tokens? Yeah, that's a lot of where the gray area comes in. And it's, it's actually a question I've got a, a lot is how do you actually make money off of this stuff? Um, and I think for, for Tether, it's an interesting example um, because of 
so, so kind of what, what I was lining, a lot of what I lined out in this report is a lot of the recent tether supply explosion lined up almost perfectly with the, the days where tether's price was above a dollar. So that, at least on paper, that means there are arbitrage opportunities for people who can print Tether. So whoever has access to, to printing Tether, which again is, is a little um, opaque, we, we don't know exactly who has access to that. But if, if whoever has access to this can print Tether at a dollar and then go sell it at a slightly higher price on exchanges, there is a, a ton of money to be made there very fast and very cheap. So I think things like that are kind of like the back alley ways of, of potentially making money off of these stable coins at this point. There's also what we were talking about earlier, the even more sketchy ways of printing stable coins that aren't fully reserved. So, you know, if in, in theory, if Tether didn't have their full reserve of U.S. dollars, they could just go and, and print more stable coins without having the, the dollars to support it. They can then sell that stable coin for other cryptocurrencies and kind of cycle it. So again, there's no there's no kind of strong proof that this is happening, but there are different allegations throughout the years that stuff like this has been happening. Outside of that, which are um, kind of the more gray area, potentially illegal ways to make money, it's an outstanding question about how these other companies are kind of going to kind of monetize it. And I think that's why there's a lot of pushback against Facebook, because people think that, as per usual, they're just going to basically data mine whoever is using this. They want to figure out exactly how people are, are spending their money across the world, and then they can monetize that data in other ways. For for Coinbase and Circle and, and Paxos, it's a little less clear, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how they're, they're going to monetize that, but um, I think that's also why we see a lot of these exchanges doing it, because they, they can afford it, first of all, and a lot of the stablecoin trading happens on the exchanges. So if Coinbase can get people using USDC on, on their exchange, that leads to more trading volume in general, and they can kind of monetize it through that. Makes a lot of sense. Is the printing of Tether mechanism something that they've talked about, or is this sort of just speculation in the market that they're doing this to squeeze out a nice profit? It's mostly speculation. I mean, so if you, if you go and look through Tether's white paper, they kind of lay out a mechanism of how this should work, of how users can go and, and deposit money into the reserve and then get Tether out and then redeem it. But in practice, we, we actually have no idea um, exactly how that process works. There's been some research done that shows as new Tether is printed, it, it basically immediately gets sent to a handful of exchanges, Bitfinex kind of being the biggest one and a couple of other exchanges. There are there's speculation that there are certain OTC desks who have access to print tether and kind of other maybe institutions, but it's all it, it's I've spent at least a month working on this report and I couldn't find too much public information about this. So unfortunately, it's it's mostly speculation, but the data does really show at least in this kind of recent supply explosion that the explosion matched up almost perfectly with when tether's price was above the dollar peg. Interesting. And what other what other things could have been behind that? So it, it's definitely, I mean, it's also connected to just the huge explosion in demands. And um, so theoretically, if there was just this, it, it could it could theoretically just purely be driven by demand, right? Like if, if all of a sudden there's this huge, huge explosion in demand across the world, they could keep printing more and more. 
I, I'm a little more skeptical of that, of why you need to double the supply in, in you know, a couple months. Um, and why, why was this supply not doubling as, as Tether's price fell back even close to a dollar and below a dollar by like end of May, the new supply just stopped being printed, at least temporarily. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a mystery and it's, it's still one of kind of the outs, outstanding mysteries of Tether and, and stable coins in general. Tether's been shrouded in mystery for as long as uh, I can remember covering the space. They've come out a little bit more in the past year trying to maybe get out there in the press a little bit more and answer questions a bit more. But it's just funny when I when I think back on when we first got started here at The Block, some of the first stories we were breaking were around Tether's banking practices and how they kind of had to hop around from bank to bank because folks don't necessarily want to work with them. And then there were all these other conspiracies. And I'm sure you remember, and, and some of our listeners, I'm sure, remember some of these um, Twitter accounts that were trying to put the puzzle pieces together, so to speak. Yep. Um, so it's always been, I mean, this has always been a big question mark in the cryptocurrency market and one that I don't think will go away anytime soon. Not that they're not working hard to, be more transparent. It's just when you have something complicated like this, there's always going to be questions, right? And when you have something that kind of operates for better or for worse in a more regulatory gray zone, there's always going to be questions like this. So it stands to reason. We kind of got through a, a bit of the report. Are there any other takeaways you think we might have missed? I think we covered most of the main ones. Yeah, kind of one of my biggest personal takeaways was the thing I was just talking about, about the whole Tether arbitrage. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend checking out those charts in the report so you can get a better idea of what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's the main thing. Um, one other interesting chart in the report that I briefly mentioned is just that the, the amount of Tether being held essentially by whale addresses. So we one thing I did in the report is I broke down um, the amount of Tether that was being held by addresses that were holding at least a certain amount. So we looked at addresses that were holding at least a million dollars worth of Tether versus addresses that were holding a thousand dollars of less worth of Tether. And after March 12th, the, the whale addresses that were holding at least a million dollars of Tether almost doubled their supply. I think it was like a billion dollars worth more of Tether were being held by these whale accounts. But at the same time, um, the number of addresses holding smaller accounts also shot up. So the number of addresses holding $100 or $1,000 worth of Tether was shooting up. So that was an interesting takeaway for me because it just showed that on one hand, the amount of Tether kind of being held probably by exchanges and other whales is increasing. But at the same time, these smaller users maybe who are using it as payments or medium of exchange are are increasing. So I think we're, we're seeing kind of these multiple things that ha are happening at once, which is part of why it's a little tricky to, to pin down exactly what's happening, but also exciting about how stable coins are kind of evolving pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a fast paced market that even we have a lot of trouble keeping up with. And I, I hope that this serves as like a good resource for anyone who's just starting to get involved in crypto and has heard a lot about stable coins and maybe is confused about the differences between some of these different projects, um, can sort of listen through this and check out Nate's report and become a bit more familiarized. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Nate. We'll have to have you back on when, <laughs> when supply, uh, 
surpasses 20 billion and we can just keep going on from there. Thanks a lot, Frank. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it and take it easy. Enjoy the weekend. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.